Welcome to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Each weekday, Dr. Crisp will be discussing biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Tune in daily to start your day right and deepen your understanding of how to better walk the way and enjoy the journey. Here's your host, Dr. Tony Crisp. Welcome to On the Way. This is Tony Crisp, and this is podcast 369. When we left the last podcast, we were talking about Greek and Koine Greek and how it was the lingua franca, the language of the day. Today, I want to talk to you about Rome and the rise of Rome. You see, while the kingdom was split in two for a period of a couple hundred years, the Greeks were dominating their language, their influence, their philosophy, their culture penetrated the world then and now still influencing us. English, the language that most that are listening this podcast speak as their mother tongue, that period still influences us today. Uh, The best I can determine from my own research, about 90% of our English language is made up of root words which come from Greek and Latin. That's why it's important that we teach Latin in schools. That's why it's important that we teach Greek to our children is because it will help them with vocabulary. If you never watched a spelling bee, if you've really watched to the end, you'll notice that when a word is asked to be spelled, those children that are the winners usually ask, what is the origin of the language from which this word comes? Why? Because if it's Latin, they know how to spell it. If it's a Latin root, if it's a Greek root, it might be similar, but it'll have a different spelling and so forth. And so these are important things for us to learn. And because we have our present day educational system, that is just a regurgitation of facts, which facts are questionable many times, then we don't really teach children how to think and how to read and how to study and how to research. We just get them through by passing tests. And so people become experts at passing tests. That's not education. That's not learning. And uh, that's certainly not teaching our, our culture and teaching our value system. There's no such thing as valueless education. Every educational system in America has a value system. Yes, the public schools have a value system. It is just a not a Judeo-Christian value system. It is a value system based in humanism. But again, that's for another podcast. I want to talk to you about the Roman period and the rise of the Roman period, really, and uh, the part that ends up affecting the New Testament. Remember, we're talking about all this week about God preparing the world for the coming of Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua. And indeed, God did that. He did that through the scattering of the Jewish people around the world so that they could form what were called Beit Knessets, later called those assembly houses were called synagogas. That is from a root word, which means I lead, but then it began to be just uh, they lead together as and then together, and then soon together they go or together they gather. That's the whole idea behind a synagogue is the assembly is gathering together. And so the synagogue system was established worldwide so that the gospel would have a place. Paul always went, the apostles always went to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so it was the focal point of Paul's ministry everywhere that he went in the Greco-Roman world, the Greek-Roman world. God prepared that through the Babylonian period to start with, but it really consolidated during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, Esther, all of that period that many times we know very little about except the stories, a couple of stories from each one of those 
those books. But it was a fascinating period. But when Alexander came along, that's when the Hasmonean dynasty was really instituted. This is when the groundwork was laid for what later happened in that dynasty during the period of the early Roman period, as we would call it, that is from about 61 BC onward, really picking up steam during the days of Augustus Caesar and Mark Antony. That's where I want to pick up with this podcast. You see, after the death of Julius Caesar, remember Caesar was assassinated by Cassius and Brutus. The Republic was at stake itself because Julius Caesar wanted to be a dictator. So there was war, literally civil war. And after the death of Julius Caesar, it came to light that his grandnephew named Octavian, he had about five names like all of them did in that era, but Octavian was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. But in his will, he adopted Octavian as his own son. And so that gave him standing with the Senate of Rome and with the people of Rome. But it was a triumvirate. It was a tri-rulership. And so you had a man by the name of Lepidus. Again, five names, but we know him as Lepidus. And Marcus Antonius. And we know him better as Mark Antony or Mark Anthony, some would say. Either is correct. It's fine. These three men rule Lepidus. We don't want to talk about him because he was given an assignment and he faded off the scene very quickly as far as power. But Octavian, being a descendant of Julius Caesar, and that family really had a a stronghold. He took pretty much all of what we would call the Western Empire. Mark Antony took the Eastern Empire, including Egypt, which was still really dominated by Greek thought, Greek language, everything. That included, during this period of time, the area called Israel and much of what is Jordan today and what would be Edom in the Bible. But all of that's part of of Edom for the most part today. And so Mark Antony, uh, of course, could not resist the allurement of Cleopatra, who had already stolen Julius Caesar's heart. And Cleopatra had one goal in mind, and that is to hold on to the dynasty of Ptolemy, the Ptolemaic dynasty, as long as she possibly could to continue to propagate Greek thought, Greek culture, all of those things, and not give in to the Romans. Mark Antony continued to give away portion of the country, of the nation of Rome that had been conquered back to Cleopatra for birthdays, for everything you can imagine. And this brought about a cry of disloyalty. And a long story short, Mark Antony and Cleopatra had their own forces their own armies. They went against Octavian and the forces of the Western Empire in what is called the Adriatic Sea by some, the Ionian Sea, just off the uh, southern coast and eastern coast of Italy, just outside of the city of Actium. There was a great naval battle between the forces of Mark Antony and Cleopatra and Octavian, and Octavian's naval forces won that great battle. Mark Antony and Cleopatra went back to Egypt. Both of them went off the scene pretty quickly by suicide and a quick death. And so Octavian was firmly in control of the entire, not just now republic, but an empire, the Roman Empire. And remember, we're talking about in the fullness of time, God preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. So uh, the way was not yet paved. So God allowed, in his great providence, Octavian to win. 
during the days and months after that great battle, uh, when he went back to the Senate, he didn't have all friends there, but there were enough that realized uh, his power, his prowess, his influence, and they began to say, look, you're more than just a man. You're, you're supernatural. Nobody could do what you're doing without being supernatural. And they began to name him the August One, which means exalted one. And it had overtures of divinity. Of course, Augustus enjoyed that. And so he became known, not as Octavian, but as Augustus Caesar. Many of you have heard me tell the story of Augustus and how he continued to expand his influence. And when you expand influence as a dictator, no matter what the governmental system is, I mean, we know that, yes, there was a Senate at Rome, but pretty much whatever Augustus wanted, that's what he got. And so he built a huge, huge home on the Palatine Hill, which overlooked the Circus Maximus, where the chariot racing went. He had overlooked the forum at Rome. You can go there today and go in the ruins of it. It was a magnificent place. It's rarely has it anything comparable in the world to what would have been the palace of Augustus. From there, you can also see the Colosseum now, although that was uh, decades later before the Colosseum was finished, even after the great revolt of the Jews. Uh, it was uh, after that before the Colosseum was built after 70 AD. And so all to say... You can see all of that from this Palatine Hill. But what you've got to understand is that the Roman armies were all over the world at this time, all over what we call the Mediterranean and and Middle Eastern world, the Bible lands as they are presented. Anywhere you have occupying forces, it costs a tremendous amount of money. Uh, We know that in America after World War II, we had occupying forces in Germany. We had occupying forces all over Europe. In Japan, after our defeat of Japan, the largest naval installation in the world that we had as Americans uh, overseas was Subic Bay in Japan. And so we had massive amounts of Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. Just look at Korea, South Korea. We still have thousands of forces there today. So this takes just massive amount of money. But remember, uh, all of this was in the Mediterranean world, and so they were not flying on airplanes. They They had ships that they sailed, and then they had roads that the armies marched across. They couldn't take everyone in ships, and they needed to occupy places along those roads. And so they built these massive roads. You come with me to Italy today, to Greece today, to Turkey today, to Israel, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Mesopotamia. You will see Roman roads that are still intact today, the Appian Way, the Ignatian Way. The the ruins of those roads are still there. They built roads, and that cost a lot of money. And so everywhere that soldiers were, they had to provide for them. They paid them in a lot of ways. That's uh, They paid them in salt. That's where the term salary comes from, that S-A-L that's in salt. That's why the Dead Sea in Israel is, was so important to the Romans and to the Greeks and Again, not a lot of time for that uh, during this podcast, but I want you to understand that God used all of these roads, God used all of this need for money to bring about his will and prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah. Remember, these were the Roman roads that the gospel would travel on after the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and the command to go, and the commission to go, the assignment to go into all the world. Well, how would they go? Well, they could 
couldn't everyone go on ships, and so they had to go by roads. The Romans built these roads. They maintained these roads, and that took money. With the great appetite of wealth and expansion that Augustus had, he went to the Senate. He said, we've got to take a census of everyone because we've got to tax people. And so that's why there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this is why Luke recorded this, that Mary and Joseph, Mary had already been impregnated by the Spirit of God himself. Joseph had already been told about this event. He went into a betrothal period, which is a very serious thing, far more serious than engagement in our Western world. You literally had to have a legal writing of divorce uh, to get out of a betrothal. And so for all practical purposes, they were promised to each other and committed to each other. And so Joseph, the Bible says in Luke chapter 2, after this decree went out, Joseph took his wife Mary, and the Bible says the two of them went up out of the Galilee, the Roman province of the Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, a very small place with an insignificant population. They went into the Roman province of Judea, in to the city of Bethlehem because they were of the ancestry, their ancestry, they were the house and lineage of David. They went to Bethlehem because they were the house and lineage of David. That was David's ancestral home. And so they went there to be taxed. See, everyone had to go their hometown to where their ancestry claimed as their home. Mary and Joseph just didn't go there all of a sudden. They went there, and I believe they went there for Passover, for Pesach. They were commanded, the Jews were, to go to Jerusalem during the days of Pesach, of unleavened bread, first fruits, Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, we call it Pentecost in the New Testament era, and then Sukkot, tabernacles, as we would say. That was a fall festival. And so all I'm saying is they were on their way anyway, and while they were there, they didn't have a window of a month or two to register. It was a period of registration, so they were going to kill two birds with one stone. They were going to go for Pesach, which was a command of God in Torah, and they were going there, and while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And so Jesus was born in Bethlehem, according to the prophets. There he was in the city of David. Why? Because he was of the house and lineage of David in the tribe of Judah. Just as the prophets had foretold, just as Matthew said that this is the lineage, the history of Jesus the Messiah. Messiah, who is a son of David, who is the son of Abraham. And these covenantal promises came into being. All of this happened just right on God's timetable. You say, wait just a minute, Passover's in the spring of the year. That's exactly right. And the reason I believe that Jesus was born in the month of Nisan within the first two weeks of that is because that's when the Passover lambs that were going to be slain as yearlings, that's where they would have been born. It would have been the lambing season, the time of the year when the lambs are being born, that Jesus would have been born. Why? Because he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Why do I say that? Because the sign that the shepherds were given would have to do with lambing season. Who were those people out there that were watching uh, those flocks by night? That would have been the Levitical priests. The Levitical boundary went all the way from Jerusalem, from Jerusalem all the way to Migdal Eder. That's what the Mishnah says, which is the oral commentary on the law and then the commentary on the commentary, the Mishnah and the Gomorrah, make up the Talmud. The Talmud gives us many historical references 
Texas as far as boundaries and so forth. And the Tower of Migdal is on the other side of Bethlehem from Jerusalem. It would be on the southern side, the Hebron side. And so all of those fields around Bethlehem would have been Levitical fields. What were they doing there at night? It was lambing season. All of the sheep, the ewes were bred so that they would give birth at the time of the latter rains when there would be green grass. The green grass only stays green for about two and a half months. Two to three months, you have green grass. That's when the ewes can pick and graze, and they don't have to do a lot of moving because they have those little lambs with them. That's when they're bred to be born, all of them at the same time, because they That's when the milk can be produced to give them good nourishment until they're weaned. And then you go through the dry months. That's exactly what happened. They were out there watching over them. Why was the sign swaddling clothes? Because they were out there at night. Why? Not to just keep the wolves away. They were out there so that when those ewes gave birth, they would know that. Because of the sounds and them watching, they would wrap them very quickly in swaddling clothes. Why? Because the little lambs had to be without spot and blemish. You can't see that with a little lamp or even with a torch many times. You have to wait till daylight. And so they would wrap them up for a few hours until daylight. They would unwrap them and make sure they were without spot and blemish. Why? Because they had to be that way in order to be sacrificed the next year in the temple. And the time when a lamb is most vulnerable for getting hurt and scarred and being blemished is in the first early hours of its birth. Because it's a very rocky region. There's terraces all over the place and lambs can uh, easily go astray from their mother, uh, step off of a ledge, break a leg, whatever, and then they'd be disqualified and that lamb would not be useful to be sold in Jerusalem the next year. So the shepherds would wrap up the sacrificial lambs that were without spot and blemish. They would wrap them up and they would swaddle them. They would watch over them. This is why the angel said, this will be a sign unto you shepherds. Listen to me. Shepherds, you'll find the babe, this Savior, who is Messiah, the Lord, the ruler of heaven and earth. You'll find him in a manger. He'll be wrapped in swaddling clothes. Why? Because he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. God prepared all of this. That's why I believe that Jesus was born in the spring of the year. You say, will you die on that hill? No, but I do believe it with all of my heart, and I believe that I've done the research to prove that. And I certainly do not believe it's during winter solstice. I do not believe it is at Tabernacles. I believe that he was born during the time of the early days of Nisan. I believe he was presented on the day of the presentation of the lambs. We call it the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, four days before he was crucified. And I believe it follows the pattern of the great Moed, the Moedim, the the special days, the number one of which is Passover. All of that was in preparation for the coming of the Son of God. That's right, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. For On the Way, this is Tony Crisp. Thanks for listening to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Tune in every weekday for information on biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Fridays are for your questions. Email your questions to questions at tonycrisp.org. Then just listen for your question to be answered on Friday's podcast. That's questions at tonycrisp.org. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day on the way.